0: I don't have good news to report. Um, There is not a match between Mr. Shiflet's DNA and any of the DNA that was found, or at least uh, analyzed in the 2009 report. He said, nah, that's definitely not him. But the guy standing next to him, that could definitely be him if he had his hair a little different. And it is just as likely that the profiles that are supposedly being labeled as coming from the quote-unquote real killer, are actually the victim's blood himself.
1: We spent months searching for the sources of the unidentified DNA left at the hasten crime scene. After convincing William Shiflett's son Will and Robert Albright to submit DNA for testing, we waded through layers of bureaucracy to secure the DNA profiles of the men known as the drifters. Finally, with the help of the DNA expert Dr. McClintock and a lab in Oklahoma, we were able to eliminate both of them as sources of the unidentified DNA. Another alternate suspect was Jim Farmer. Jens claims Elizabeth talked about him the night of the murders. Jim died in 2014, and a comparison of familial DNA eliminates him. With the most likely alternate suspects eliminated as sources of that unidentified DNA, Bedford County's prosecutor Wes Nance offered a different theory, one that would explain why the DNA would never match the, quote, real killers. It is just
0: as likely that the profiles that are supposedly being labeled as coming from the, quote, unquote, real killer are actually the victim's blood himself.
1: He suggested the unidentified DNA actually came from Derek Hasem. A DNA expert that reviewed the case for the television show 2020 confirmed that was possible. It's not like a clear case of a wrongful conviction based on new DNA.
0: I do not see compelling evidence of a wrongful conviction.
1: With the new theory on the source of the DNA, we decided to take another look at the crime scene evidence. In a strange turn of events, we heard from someone who's never spoken publicly about the case.
0: This was probably the worst thing I'd ever seen in my life.
1: Buzz McFadden was a rookie deputy in Bedford County in 1985. He was there the night the Haysom bodies were discovered.
0: I was there all night. I can tell you I did not get sleepy. It was kind of scary. Um, Two people very brutally murdered.
1: We've spent hours talking to investigators who were at the scene of the Haysom murders, but we'd never heard of McFadden until an unlikely coincidence. Our friends Angie Fanning and Allison Melody were on vacation in Jamaica and sent us a text. On their trip, they befriended Buzz and his wife, Jennifer, who were also vacationing. And when they realized his connection to the case, they knew we'd want to hear from him. Allison is a podcaster herself, and happened to have her own recording equipment with her. After a flurry of calls and texts with us back and forth to Jamaica, Buzz and Jennifer agreed to do an interview with Allison and Angie for our podcast. The interview allowed us to get a fresh look at the crime scene from one of the few investigators who's never taken a public stance on the case.
0: Been 35 years. If I could print. My memories, I could print you crime scene photography because it's that vivid. Blood has a smell and blood has a taste. And you could, you had both. There was so much blood in that house that you could smell it and taste it.
1: The bodies of Derek and Nancy Hasom had been found in their home in early April of 1985. Both had been stabbed multiple times and nearly decapitated. Nancy's body was found in a pool of blood in the kitchen
0: the kitchen floor was so thick in dried blood I don't know if you have ever taken if you ever taken a newspaper and burnt it and you can still read it you know how the newspaper will stay in one shape and you can still make out the letters but it kind of pulls away from the surface and gets very crumbly that's what the blood was like in the kitchen floor it had pulled away from the the linoleum and actually formed a, a film of dried blood, but it had pulled away from the floor. It was like burnt paper.
1: The kitchen is where one of the unidentified DNA samples was taken from a swab of AB blood that was long believed to have belonged to Nancy. But the DNA testing in 2009 revealed that sample contained male DNA. Jens and his team have concluded that means an unidentified man with AB blood was bleeding in that kitchen. Buzz was just two weeks out of the police academy and found himself in the middle of a crime scene playing a hands-on role.
0: We were a very small department, so everybody wore a lot of hats. Um, we were there for a lot of the evidence collection. They wanted us to have the experience. We were there as with mentors, watching, seeing.
1: The brutality of the crime scene gave rise to motives of gang violence or voodoo. And Buzz says 1980s police work was steeped in homophobia, leading to another theory.
0: One thing they taught us in school and in the academy, that if you have an extremely brutal homicide, it's a crime of passion and power. Now, going back 35 years, you have to put it in a time frame. We considered those homosexual murders when homosexuals killed homosexuals. There was always a lot of passion and a lot of brutality, a lot of what we would call overkill. That's what I saw in the Haysom house. Just the violence was unbelievable.
1: Derek Haysom's body was found near the fireplace between the living and the dining room. He had stab wounds on his back and hands, indicating a struggle. He was also nearly decapitated. His blood, type A blood, was collected. There was also type O blood found at the scene. At trial, Prosecutor Jim Updike mentioned the O blood, Yen's blood type, more than 20 times. In 2009, the new testing showed DNA from the swab of type O blood didn't match Jens. Yen's team again concluded that meant an unidentified man with type O blood had blood at the scene. But Wes Nance and Dr. Crane believe the DNA in the type O blood could have been Derek Hasems. In a bloody struggle with a knife, the victim's blood, skin cells, saliva, or sweat could be anywhere, including mixed with Yen's blood. That could explain the unknown DNA in the AB and own blood. Buzz says it's basic law enforcement knowledge that we leave our DNA everywhere we go.
0: When I leave this room tonight, I leave evidence that I was here. There's skin cells on this sofa. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, forgive me, there's spittle on this microphone. (laughs) Um, But it all indicates that I was here. When I go back to my room, I will take evidence that I was in this room. You cannot go in an area and not leave something. And you cannot go out of that area and not take something with you. Now, you have to find it and you have to hook it to somebody.
1: Bedford prosecutors hooked the O blood to Jens, and it was used to convict him at the trial in 1990. Buzz's wife Jennifer was a kid in Lynchburg when those murders happened, and says Jens became something of a legend. There's a, an Aerosmith song called Janie's Got a Gun, and we would joke around in high school and college that Jens has got a knife. But if that was Jens' typo blood at the crime scene, then why wasn't his DNA found anywhere? One explanation? The DNA testing done in 2009 only tested a few small samples from the crime scene. The Haysom murder case was one of many to undergo new DNA testing after the discovery that untested blood samples had been saved and stored in old case files. The blood tested for DNA was a tiny fraction of the blood evidence collected at the scene. So, with Bedford County's prosecutor saying the untested crime scene evidence would be too contaminated to give reliable results, we thought our investigation had reached a dead end. And then, we got an unsolicited Facebook message. Dear Small Town Big Crime Podcast, I am an American lawyer and journalist who speaks fluent German and has published tens of thousands of words in German and English on the jens case. What I'd like to do is offer you a friendly challenge. I would like to be interviewed for an upcoming episode of your podcast. I will be able to demonstrate that Jens Soaring is unquestionably guilty of killing the Hasems and was fairly convicted. You can ask me any questions you like about the case and I'll be happy to answer it. We had actually heard of Andrew Hamill, who sent us that message. In an email Jens wrote to his supporters that was forwarded to us shortly after his parole in December of 2019 Jens warns about Hamel's campaign to discredit his claims of innocence. He had mentioned him to us again in a June email, saying Hamel was harassing him. We discovered Hamel had written a 30,000 word article for a prominent German magazine. He was obviously well versed in the case, and we wanted to hear what he had to say, so we took him up on his friendly challenge and asked him why he'd gotten involved. I'm literally the
0: only German speaking journalist who has ever. Expressed any skepticism at all about Jens story. Everyone else has just simply accepted whatever he had said at face value.
1: His lengthy article was published the day Jens and Elizabeth were granted parole in 2019. He argues that Jens is undeniably guilty and has spent the past 30 years twisting and cherry picking evidence to bolster his claims of innocence. But Hamill says a critical look at the facts reveals those claims to be lies. In addition to citing the conclusions of Dr. Crane about the DNA evidence from the crime scene, he says Yen's multiple confessions after his arrest in 1986 and his evolving stories between his arrest and his trial are proof of Yen's guilt.
0: Once you just get into the details of what was actually shown and proven at trial, and before trial, Yin Zering's credibility is completely gone. There's just nothing left.
1: Hamel said he became familiar with Yen's case while working as a defense attorney for death row inmates in Texas, but hadn't immersed himself in the case until he was living in Germany and heard Yen's claims of innocence.
0: All German news coverage universally takes Jens Zering's position. Every German who even knows his name is convinced he was totally railroaded by a corrupt justice system. And I say, you know, I want to publish another perspective.
1: In addition to publishing magazine articles on the case, Hamill has a blog where he frequently posts about the soaring case. It's a site Jens seems to be monitoring closely. When Hamill posted about speaking with us for our podcast, it provoked an immediate response from Jens' camp. Within hours of speaking with Hamill one July morning, Courtney and Rachel both received calls from Jens' supporters inquiring about our contact with Hamill. And Jens' German attorney sent us a dossier on Hamel. The dossier presents Hamel as a money motivated troll with no significant influence. The dossier says Hamel has roughly 700 followers on Twitter with no growth at all. When he tweets about Soaring, he gets three or four likes and perhaps one comment. Even his blog posts receive no more than two or three comments. The dossier also says Hamel has no new evidence or first-hand interviews, and accuses Hamill of intimidating Soring with threats of lawsuits and intimidating Soarin' supporters, including accusing best-selling author John Grisham of libeling the judge at Yen's trial while giving an interview to a German television journalist. The dossier also mentions another document that appears to be concerning Jens' team, something called the Wright Report, and Hamel cites it in his work. It's a 446-page document titled, A True Report on the Facts of the Investigation of the Murders in Derek and Nancy Hasem. In painstaking, obsessive detail, it lays out the evidence against Jens and the Hasem murders, and presents counter-arguments to each claim Jens has put forth in support of his innocence. It's packed with portions of trial transcripts, investigators' notes, and an analysis of the DNA from the scene. The report is dated 2019 and signed by Terry Wright, a retired British police detective. Wright is one of the officers who interrogated Jens and took his confession after his arrest in England in 1986. Wright testified at Yens' trial and more recently gave an interview about the case to 2020, along with retired British detective Ken Beaver, who also interrogated Jens and is cited in the report. According to the lengthy introduction, the report was submitted to Virginia Governor Ralph Northam in 2019, as the Virginia Parole Board considered releasing Jens and Elizabeth, and Northam considered Jens' petition for a pardon. But those parole board files are confidential, and the right report hasn't been publicized elsewhere. In fact, the only places you can find it are on soaringguiltiestcharge.com, a blog dedicated to proving Jens' guilt, and on a German magazine website. All right. So it looks like the Wright report starts with the DNA,
0: and then goes into the crime scene.
1: Already alerted to our contact with Hamill, Yen's team worked to undermine our trust in the authenticity of the Wright report. According to information sent to us by Yen's German attorney, there are reasons to believe that an aging British detective could not be the author of such a document.
0: They do claim that the spellings, there's British and American spelling going back and forth, including the yes. word defense, the word check being spelled with a Q-U-E and a C-K, like the American thing, and they, and they they cite all of those things.
1: The dossier from Jens' German attorney also cited the amateur title of the report and a noticeable difference in Wright's signatures in 1986 and 2019. But the biggest concern about the report expressed in the dossier went beyond grammatical or handwriting inconsistencies. Despite many reported attempts by Yen's lawyer, a filmmaker, and another investigator, the dossier said no one had been able to reach Terry Wright to confirm he wrote the report and the accuracy of what it contained. Yen's team may not have been able to reach Terry Wright, but Elizabeth's closest confidant, her cousin Phyllis, said she's in contact with the retired detective. I heard from him just, what, three or four weeks ago from Terry. He's still investigating. He still had some questions for Elizabeth. I've been the intermediary with Nigel and with Terry. Uh, they will email me with questions for Elizabeth. Nigel is Nigel McGuire. He's someone else we've reached out to but haven't heard back from. According to Phyllis, he runs the Soaring Guilty Guiltiest Charged blog, where the Wright report was published. We asked Phyllis if she could help put us in touch with Terry Wright. I don't know that Terry uh, could tell you anything more than, than, than is in his 450-page report. Phyllis agreed to reach out to him with our request, but weeks went by with no response, and we grew increasingly baffled by his silence. We have an issue here with not just not knowing what is going on with the right report, and why he's not willing to just confirm that he authored it. It's basic journalistic practice to confirm the authenticity of any source you use in your reporting. Rolling Stone magazine learned that lesson the hard way when writing another story centered on University of Virginia students that was published in 2014. In the course of writing that article, A Rape on Campus?, the reporter and editors failed to confirm basic details of a young woman's claims of a brutal sexual assault. And that failure resulted in civil judgments against the magazine and the reporter who wrote the piece.
0: Terry Wright knows we're looking for him, and we want to verify that he's done all of this hard work on this report. And yet we are getting radio silence. Where is he? We may have to get creative
1: with our efforts. After failing to find any contact information for him online, we called the police station where we believed he once worked. Thank you for calling the Metropolitan Police 101 service. For the main menu, please press zero, or to speak with an operator, press nine. To end this call, Hello, please. Hi, my name is Courtney Stewart. I'm a journalist in Charlottesville, Virginia, in the U.S. I'm trying to reach uh,
0: an officer named Terry Wright. Okay, where did you get this name?
1: Well, he may be retired.
0: Okay, there's nobody in
1: the police force by that name. So we turned to the Internet and found the official website of the Association of Ex-CID Officers of the Metropolitan Police. The group was started in 1949, and the website boasts that its members, quote, "...have been involved in some of the most high-profile criminal investigations in the world, and quite justifiably, can profess and be proud to have served in one of the world's most famous law enforcement organizations, New Scotland Yard." We sent an email, hoping someone within the organization could help us connect with Terry Wright and Ken Beaver. We heard back from the head of the association, who said neither were members, but he did know Beaver, and he promised to ask the membership for contact details and to get back to us. A week later, he did. Hi, Courtney. Both have been sent your message. It is up to them to respond. Regards, Bob. As we waited for a response, we continued pouring over the right report, and we started to understand why Yen's might not want us to read it. Jens has claimed for decades that he gave a false confession under pressure from investigators in London after he and Elizabeth were arrested on fraud charges in 1986. We asked him about his confession when we interviewed him while he was still in prison in October of 2019. This is what he told us.
0: For the first three days, I didn't say anything, but I kept asking for my lawyer over and over and over again and they would not give me my lawyer.
1: According to the Wright Report and trial testimony, this is not true. Yen's attorney on the fraud charges in London met with him the morning of June 5, 1986, and showed him the newspaper headlines of voodoo murders and the article on the couple's arrest. Later that day, according to a custody record, Jens waived his right to have an attorney present for questioning about the murders. And then there's an audio recording of Yen's interrogation that Hamill shared with us on June the sixth, nineteen eighty-six, at eleven forty p.m. at the Richmond, England police station. We confirmed that that audio matched the trial transcript. It reveals he told investigators in London that he didn't need a lawyer during his second day of interrogation. I don't think that I can't. Depending on how this interview goes, I don't see the need
0: for an attorney. Right now, okay, today, we'll have to see what, how this interview goes and what happens during the interview. I can't tell right now.
1: Bedford investigator Ricky Gardner, who'd flown to London, reminds Jens he isn't required to answer investigators' questions.
0: Just as yesterday, if we ask you a question and you prefer not to answer that question, I would say I'm not going to answer that question.
1: So, according to the recorded interview in trial records, Jens was made aware of his rights and had spoken with an attorney before confessing. In our interview with Jens, he claimed he had promised Elizabeth that he'd take the fall for the crime, even though he was innocent, and he thought his status as a son of a German diplomat would protect him.
0: I'm still, you know, like 99% sure that I have diplomatic immunity and. I decided to go ahead and keep my promise without talking to a lawyer first.
1: But the Wright Report presents information to debunk that claim. It points out that Jens had plenty of opportunities to research diplomatic immunity before his arrest, including several visits to embassies while he and Elizabeth were on the run. And it claims he had plenty of opportunity to ask about it after his arrest, including when he spoke with his attorney. A recording of the second day of interviews with Jens and investigators in England played at Jens' trial reveals someone from the German embassy called the police station to speak with Jens, and investigators stopped the interview to let him take the call, just as Jens was admitting he was at the Haysom house that night.
0: That you frankly admitted to being there that night. I admit to being the Saturday night. Okay. All right? Okay. Okay. When in fact, can I cut in on you here? It is fairly important that Mr. Wright just come back in the room at 1239 approximately, and we've been told that the embassy are returning their calls to yes uh, here. I think it's important that he, that he does speak. Okay. Yeah, we're trying to
1: take off. In trial testimony, Yens confirms he spoke with an embassy official. But says he was reticent on the call because Wright was in the room. According to trial records, after that call, Jens asked the investigators if they thought he would be extradited to the U.S., saying he preferred to be tried in Germany, where any possible sentence would be far lighter. British detective Ken Beaver is blunt about Jens' situation, as you hear on the audio recording. What's you think? To the USA in this case. It's hard to see how Jens misunderstood. Records show he had the opportunity to ask people who knew about diplomatic immunity and was directly told he was likely going back to the U.S. for trial. Despite that, he went forward with his confession. Jens told us he held out those first three days of questioning.
0: They took us to police station on June the 5th, that was a Thursday, and the judge said that they could question us for four days, from Thursday, June the 5th, till Sunday, June the 8th. For the first three days, I didn't say anything.
1: As we looked through trial transcripts and listened to the audio recordings of his interviews with investigators, we realized the confession timeline Jens presented to us didn't match. In his first recorded interview with investigators on June 5, 1986, Jens puts himself at the crime scene, telling investigators he drove from Washington, D.C. to the Haysom House the night of the murders. Bedford County Deputy Rick Gardner is asking the questions here.
0: Did you knock on the door? Yes. And who came to the door? Okay. At this point, did he invite you in? Yes. And what type of conversation between the two of you? Well, um, we had the drink. And and what type of drink did you have? Alcoholics? It was...
1: Jens went on to tell investigators the Hasems had already eaten dinner, but offered him a plate, and Derek Hasem had some ice cream as they sat in the dining room. He declined to talk to investigators about what happened when he was there, and said he only stayed about 45 minutes and disposed of his jeans and windbreaker on the drive back to D.C. from the Haysom house.
0: there should be
1: Later, investigators would confirm there were cameras in the elevator lobby in the parking garage under the hotel, but they weren't recording. The Wright report cites Jens' belief that he was caught on camera as evidence that he was telling the truth on the first night of interrogations. That first recorded interview with investigators lasted about an hour. Jens didn't fully confess on tape, but put himself in the Haysom home that night After the recording stopped, Jens sketched the layout of the Haysom house to show investigators where the bodies were when he left the house that night, according to testimony from Ricky Gardner at Jens' trial. In recorded interviews over the next two days in London, Jens has questions for investigators. Along with asking about extradition, he inquires about the difference between first- and second-degree murder charges and a plea bargain. And then, on June 8th, Jens gives his full confession to Ricky Gardner, but says he does not want it to be on tape. Since his trial in 1990, Jens has maintained that his confession was false, and has cited mistakes in his confession as proof. Some of those alleged errors include he got the location of Derek Hasem's body wrong when he drew the diagram for investigators, and his description of the dining room seating made the attack, as he described it in his confession, impossible. But the sketches that Jens produced for investigators are mostly accurate, with the exception of the direction Derek Hasem's body was lying. And the Wright report makes the argument that Jens' account of the dining room table seating and the attack were indeed compatible. The report says these arguments have been used by his attorneys and supporters to defend Jens, and it alleges that is part of Jens' strategy. Quote, These lies, the report says, originate from soaring, and he uses other people to repeat them. 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 We finished reading the Wright report, but we still hadn't verified that Terry Wright was the author, and his secrecy did seem odd. We emailed Andrew Hamill, the attorney in Germany, who wrote the long article disputing Yen's claims of innocence, asking if he could help put us in touch with Wright. The next day, instead of an email back from Andrew, We got an email from Phyllis, who forwarded a statement she said was from Terry Wright. Thank you for taking the time to reach out to me. I did get the message through other retired detectives and through Phyllis Workman, the statement said. I apologize for the delay in replying. I needed to think carefully about my response. I have now listened to your podcasts, and as a result, I've decided not to enter into a dialogue with you. Although he declined to speak with us, the statement went on to repeat many of the issues covered in the Wright Report, and expressed frustration that we and other reporters over the years could have ever doubted Yen's guilt. I can assure you that I am the Terry Wright that investigated Yen's soaring, and I did write the report that was submitted to the governor of Virginia, the statement said. What you should bear in mind is that even if someone else wrote the report using my name, the facts within the report can still be checked against the evidence. We had reached the same conclusion. I mean, clearly whoever wrote this
0: has a lot of information about the case, right?
1: Right. I mean, I think that's sort of a
0: moot point, really. I mean, you know, you can use it as a guide. You can assume Terry Wright wrote it, or you can assume somebody else who had access to the same information claiming to be Terry Wright wrote it, but if you're using it just as a guide to get to the source documents and to see if these things make sense, the author really becomes insignificant.
1: Right, because we have the trial transcripts. We have a lot of this information, so we can just go back and double check. Yeah. When we started our investigation in 2019, our goal was to find the truth about what really happened the night Derek and Nancy Hasem were murdered. The most recent development in the case at that time was the claim that Jens and his supporters made of unidentified DNA at the scene. There was international support for the petition for a pardon, and Jens and his supporters made themselves available to us for interviews and were happy to send supporting documents. We didn't initially have as much success hearing from people who maintain Jens' guilt. Elizabeth declined to speak with us, and Bedford County Sheriff Ricky Gardner, who built his career on Jens' conviction, refused multiple requests for an interview, as did former Bedford prosecutor Jim Updike, who's now a judge in Bedford. We were able to speak with former Bedford Sheriff Carl Wells and current Bedford Commonwealth's attorney, Wes Nance, who'd said additional DNA testing wouldn't be conclusive. Journalists should be open to where the facts and the evidence lead. We started with Jens and his team's claim that two unidentified men bled at the scene, and we tested it by trying to find out who those men were. But after 18 months of research, rather than finding a match, we eliminated all of the likely alternate suspects and were presented with a different interpretation of the DNA from the crime scene and counter-arguments to all of Yen's claims. Our next step is clear. Next on Small Town Big Crime... search for answers to our new questions hey have you heard anything else from him yeah he's not going to go on the record well that doesn't work no i mean he's the only person that can answer these questions and we need to hear it from him Hi, this is Courtney Stewart. If you're enjoying this podcast and appreciate our work, please consider supporting us on Patreon. This type of investigative journalism is labor-intensive and expensive. Rachel and I are working on a new case for season two, and we can't do it without your help. Check out our Patreon page, Small Town, Big Crime.
0: Hi, this is Rachel Ryan. When Courtney
1: and I first started our podcast, we found the perfect place to work and network, Common House in Charlottesville. Now, people in cities across the country and even around the world can benefit from a Common House membership. With other locations in Richmond and Chattanooga, Tennessee, Thousands of creative types, entrepreneurs, and other professionals like you are finding a social club that helps them make new connections, both personal and professional. Each location offers gorgeous, comfortable spaces for conversation, quiet spots for working, and tons of planned activities that spark conversation and networking. A Common House membership also comes with global benefits. You'll get access to dozens of clubs around the world, from San Francisco to London to Auckland to Singapore. Don't just take our word for it. Come check out Common House yourself, and if you spot us there, say hello.